All right. Well, let's get into it. Let's pray. Commit our time in God's Word together. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your amazing grace to us that we can sing of Your creative power, Your redemptive work. Sing of You fulfilling Your promises to us, revealing Your character to us. Thank You, Lord, that You have made Yourself known. And uh, what a joy it is to together as one, as your people, as your church, to call to mind who you are and what you have done. For you have done so for your own glory, but also for the benefit of your people. And may we benefit especially this morning, Lord, as we uh, study your word, as we become absorbed in it, and to, and to really know you. Please help us. Give me wisdom to Proclaim, Lord, what you have put on my heart this week, that your people may be made glad of heart. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right, well, we are in the book of Second Peter, so go ahead and open your Bibles there. Second Peter, last Lord's Day, we began by giving some introductory material, exploring some of the, the themes and the occasion, and as well as the author. So we'll get into the actual text today. And I did mention, I believe I mentioned this, that it was, we're, we're going to be a little faster going through this, uh, through this book. So, uh, again, don't, do not be alarmed by the fact that we are only getting through two verses today. Uh, as, as I studied this week, um, a, a lot, uh, from the text presented itself. And there, I think there is a, uh, a pretty clean transition from verse two to verse three. So we really do want to, um, time this well and be wise with our uh, study of this text and to see what the Lord has to say to us through it. So our text this morning, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, so please follow along as I read. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So one of the things we want to quickly notice before unpacking this text, because this what Paul mentions repeatedly in the opening two verses of this book really point us to the very subject which is to guide our understanding of this text. So look very carefully at it again, because he's mentioned three times. In the opening verse, Peter says this, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Then you go further on, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then in verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. So we read that three times. Of Jesus, of Jesus, of Jesus. We must conclude that that very phrase is key to understanding this text. Key to understanding the introduction to this book and therefore absolutely key in understanding the remainder of the book. I think sometimes it's easy that far too often we kind of gloss over the, the uh, introductory verses and just sort of give some sidebar comments to it and so we can move into the real meat of it. But in Second Peter, I, I think it would, we, would, we would suffer loss if we did that. It's all the Word of God, so it's all for our benefit. And so I think we do well to really focus on what Peter is establishing here. Of course, he always lays the groundwork very well, sort of the foundational principles of what will be uh, a guide, a doctrinal guide uh, for the rest of the book. But we can't ignore this pattern where he draws our attention with each truth to Jesus Christ. So the title of today's sermon is What Christ Must Be. What Christ Must Be. Now, of course, you think of a title like that and it could be a little off-putting. I mean, who are we? Who do we think we are? Men made of dirt to say what Christ must be. And yet, we find there is immense truth and application in that. Because Christ must be understood as He is revealed by Scripture. That is of the utmost importance. 
We are not being conformed to a Christ of our own imagination, of our own invention. We are being conformed to the image of Christ as He is presented in Holy Scripture. To embrace what Christ is not, or what He even may be, if we cling, if we cling to a Christ of, of our own uncertainty, that is to miss out on the fullness of all spiritual graces He avails to us. And that's at best. And at worst, it is to pervert the Gospel and forfeit salvation. So it is very beneficial to consider in the context of Christ Himself what is going on in this text. What Christ must be. And I would say by application, what He must be to us. It's not that we are reinventing Christ, but we have to understand Him in truth as He is presented because we are called to worship Him in spirit and in truth. We can't worship in truth what we do not know in truth. So you also want to consider what Peter's audience is enduring. If you recall from the first letter, Peter's audience is enduring uh, a pretty substantial level of persecution that mostly includes misrepresentation and marginalization from society. Remember, we talked about those external threats, those external threats from from uh, persecutors, but now we turn to more internal threats. And that's not to say even that the external threats have gone anywhere. But it is a double threat. One external and one internal. And here we find in the second letter from Peter that the churches in Asia Minor are currently enduring an onslaught of a multitude of false prophets, as he describes in chapter 2, verse 1. And to be on guard. And false prophets will always present a false Christ. That is the basis for every false gospel is a false Jesus. A Jesus that Scripture does not present or proclaim or substantiate or endorse in any way. And so as these believers are enduring these afflictions both from without and from within and actually awaiting what Peter describes as the coming day of the Lord. Again, this is for, this is for their time. They need particular resources to endure until the Lord shows up in judgment. And I think in the opening two verses, we are, we are given three very important things. Three things that Christ must be, which will assist these churches in enduring the present challenges. And of course, these challenges are also our challenges. The challenges to the church never go away. Right? There is a constancy to them. We still stave off false gospels today. We still must endure and persevere through persecution of, 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 of a variety, in a variety of ways. And so these tools, these fundamental truths that Peter presents to these churches are also presented to us. There, there, are, there is plenty here for us to embrace and to apply as we also endure, as we also ultimately await for the return of Christ. But as we do that, we remain committed to the work of the Gospel. We remain dependent upon grace. We don't know when the Lord is going to return, and it's not for us to know that. What is for us to know is that His kingdom will, will continue to build. It will continue to expand. It will continue to grow in number. And our responsibility is to proclaim the Gospel faithfully. Regardless of the times, regardless of the seasons. We are to be about the work of God in proclaiming the salvation that is found in His Son. So three things, three things. Three things that are fundamental to spiritual growth as Peter wishes for his people. Three things that are fundamental to endurance, that are fundamental to confronting this host of false teachers and false gospels that are running rampant back then and are running rampant even now. So here's the first one. Number one, what Christ must be. Christ must be proclaimed. See, very simple. That's the first one. Christ must be proclaimed. You think, well, how do we find that in verse one? Well, let's see. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So that is our, that is our opening point. Christ must be proclaimed. So he is proclaimed fundamentally here in two ways. That is of being his servants and, of course, we find that as well as in leadership. 
So in the service, the service is bound up in the word bondservant if you have the NASB. In terms of leadership, is found in apostle. So in any capacity in the church, as is exemplified here by Peter, Christ must be proclaimed. So let's look at, let's look at Peter, the apostle Peter, and how he presents himself. He is the bondservant and the apostle of Jesus Christ. So what we have here in the opening verse is two names and two titles. He is Simon Peter, and he is bondservant and apostle. So in 1 Peter, he only introduces himself as Peter, but here it's Simon Peter. And there is a, there is a question as to the significance of this. Some have, some have uh, commented on this. Paul Helm says this, <clears throat> Using both names conveys the life experience of one who isn't afraid to wed together the man as I was born with I am the man I am today because of the gracious influence of Jesus. Remember when the Lord met him, <clears throat> called him by Simon, the man he was, and says, you now are, you, you now are to be called Peter. Right? I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And surely Peter did become a rock. Though he faced many challenges along the way, we know him as the disciple who would often uh, run his mouth a little bit, a disciple who was bold, but also the disciple who denied Christ when he knew it would cost him something, denied Christ, denied knowing Christ three times. And then again, in the book of Galatians, we find a Peter who's wishy-washy regarding what he knows to be a gospel that has brought the Gentiles into fellowship, but then he holds himself aloof when that challenge faces him, right? And goes to separate himself from the Gentiles and hang, out only, only around, and hang out only with Jews. So we find a man who is very human, who faces much of the same challenges that we do, and yet, again, it's not about Peter. It's about, it's about the grace of God that has been given him to equip him to be a bondservant of Christ and an apostle of Christ. So let's look at these words a little more carefully. Peter, first of all, introduces himself as a bondservant literally doulos or slave, okay? So we are familiar with that term. We've talked about it uh, multiple times, but this word doulos just simply means slave, not so much an indentured servant, but one who is a slave. Again, if you were a slave in Rome, and it is thought that even up to one-third or more of those in the Roman Empire were slaves, right? We think you know, a great example is that today of a doctor. Doctors today typically make a very good paycheck. They live a really... Uh, financially equipped life. And back then, you could be a doctor and still be a slave. So it's a little unfamiliar to us, but a slave was essentially a nobody, a non-person. We say a thing. A tool made of flesh and blood, personal property of a master who could kill or dispose of him or her with but a word. Right? And so that language is borrowed, but again, it is given significance. See, even though we are Christ's property. We belong to Him, and He has the power, surely, of life and death over us. We do not equivocate slavery in Rome to slavery in the kingdom of Christ. In an ironic way, to be a slave of Christ was to be given great honor and privilege. It was to be given an opportunity to serve. It was to regain personhood. It wasn't merely of being a slave. It was to identify yourself with Christ. Consider even Old Testament saints and how the Word describes them. If we go from the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we, we find a number of men, of godly men, who were slaves, who were douloi of God. In Deuteronomy 34.5, we read of Moses as the slave of God. Joshua, who succeeded Moses, also a slave of God in Joshua 24.29. Think of even the most famous Israelite, most likely, King David, renowned king of Israel. The servant shepherd is described in 2 Samuel 3.18 as a slave. Also describes himself thusly in the Psalms. And so this legacy continues with the apostles and in their writings, James, Peter, Paul, Jude, and, <clears throat> and others reckon themselves as slaves of Jesus Christ. But more than considering themselves to simply be a human tool, they considered it a great honor. Right? A great honor to 
proclaim Christ in that mode, to be His servant, to speak His words. That is why we draw from this opening verse that what Christ must be is proclaimed. To be His servant, to be His slave, was to represent Him. Was to make His name known. Believers are also known as slaves of Christ. This, 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 this name slave is not simply given to those who are of a high station, whether that be Moses, Joshua, or David. It's not only given to apostles. It's given to Christians as well. In 1 Corinthians 7.22, we read this, For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. And that designation extends to everyone who belongs to Christ. We are His. Faithful minister Epaphras from Colossians 4.12, who Paul says this of, is one of your number, a bond slave, or just a slave, a doulos of Jesus Christ. So you see how important it is that when we read a word like this, we do not see simply a person who has no identity, a person who is a thing, a person who is merely slave property, right? who is often mistreated and abused. See, we are not that way when it comes to belonging to Jesus Christ. While being His slave, we see a wonderful calling, right? a great opportunity to make His name known. As Christ's slaves, remember, we represent Him. We're His representatives. We proclaim Him. So everyone who belongs to Jesus Christ is His slave. So what this means, of course, for us is that being Christ's slave means that, of course, we belong to Him, right? We are not only His personal property, but we are His precious possession. The fact that we belong to Christ means that He loves us. He has set His redemptive love upon us. We belong to Him because He has redeemed us. He has bought us back from spiritual slavery, and now we live in Him. But we belong to Him, right? We're not to wander around aimlessly or autonomously. We refer to Him as our Master. Secondly, being Christ's slave means we find our identity in Him, right? When we proclaim Christ, when we preach the Gospel, we proclaim that we do not know ourselves apart from Him, right? The believer cannot describe himself apart from describing himself in the context of Christ and what He has done. You know, we've sung it here before, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Such a, such a blessed mystery, but we if we are to understand who we are at all, we must look to Christ and find our identity in Him, hidden in Him. That He calls us by name. That He is our Good Shepherd and leads us. But we are never to understand who we are outside of Him and what He has done for us. Here's the third one. Being Christ's slave means that we are used by Him. Again, not merely a human tool, but a powerful instrument in the Redeemer's hands to proclaim His truth. It is, a, it is a blessing. It is a joy to be able to be used by God. Not being a, an instrument of unrighteousness, right? Not, not, not being a law unto ourselves and doing that which pleases us, but to to be before Him humbly and to know that we are being used redemptively by Him for His glory and that He does so however He pleases. And we say that when we are at, when we are at the Master's whim, we do find a certain peace and solace in Christ because we know that He is good. That Christ is never going to be petty or capricious or, or mistreat His people. He will always deal with us justly. He will always treat us righteously. He will always do that which is best for us. Here's, a, here's another one. Being Christ's slave also means that we obey Him in all things. If we belong to Him, find our identity in Him, and are to be used by Him, then it follows that we respond with an obedient heart. Right? Not my will, Lord, we say, just as Jesus said, but Your will be done. I have come to do Your will, O Lord. If we belong to Christ, if we are truly His, if we are His slaves, if we are in His household, we obey Him. We obey Him because we belong to Him, right? It's even, even, even obedience is a response to a gracious act by God. We couldn't obey God outside of grace, outside of His enablement. 
We also obey Him trusting Him. We obey Him by faith. So all this put together is that being a slave of Christ is an opportunity for His people and at large for His church to make His name great. We are called together to exalt the name of Jesus Christ. To lift Him up. To make Him known. And that is where this proclamation is evident. In the life of Peter, but also in the life of the church. See, even Peter as an apostle does not exalt himself. Like any other believer, he reckons himself as belonging to Christ. Again, what what peace we have in that. What assurance we have in belonging to Him. No longer being orphans, no longer being strangers, but being called into the body of Christ to make His name known and to enjoy belonging to Him. What a privilege, right? So he's, he's a slave, but he is also, as we read, he is an apostle. He is an apostle sent out, sent off to proclaim the Word of the Lord, to proclaim the Gospel, to teach and disciple just as the Lord Jesus commanded him and the rest of the apostles. But from there we find our ultimate authority, right? Peter is writing this as an apostle and as a servant, but he is writing not his own words, but the words of Jesus Christ. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ, proclaiming Him, serving Him, representing Him. As Green says, the authority of this letter rests not on Peter's numinous presence in the church, but on his role as one whom Christ sent. Right? And in the same way, the church is the, the church and all who belong to it are messengers. We are sent not to proclaim human wisdom, but to proclaim the Word of God and to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ and His Kingdom, calling all to faith, calling all to repentance and trust in the provision of Jesus Christ. So in this example, see, we find in one man, Peter, that we can proclaim Christ, right? We can honor Him both in serving and in leadership. And even though we find that the Apostle is a unique office confined to that era, we are still those who are sent out to make Christ known. So that is the first thing. Christ must be proclaimed. If the church is to endure, if the church is to be faithful, if the church is to continue growing in grace, then Christ must be Proclaim. You want to find a church or even a Christian lacking in grace, lacking in maturity, you will find a void in his life where Christ should be proclaimed, where Christ should be taught, where Christ should be made known. That is a compromise that I think is far too present in the church where Christ is simply not proclaimed. And if he is proclaimed, it's as if he is proclaimed for some, to meet some kind of fleshly desire. But he must be proclaimed as he is presented in Scripture. That he is Lord, that he is King, that he is Savior, and that he is to be all in all. He is worthy of our love and adoration and worship. He is everything. Here's the second one. And like I said, these are very basic. First, Christ must be proclaimed. Secondly, Christ must be believed. See, when we proclaim Christ, we're not just in a vague way saying, hey, look, Jesus, right? No, we are, we are commanding people everywhere to repent and believe. Same thing for the church. The church must, ex- must set, and I would say even excel <laughs> in setting that example of what it is to trust Christ, what it is to believe in Him. He must be believed in His church, along with being proclaimed faithfully and clearly. So let's look at the text again. See these people to whom He is writing. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Now remember, those to whom He is writing refers to the same set of churches, the same group of churches uh, that He is writing to in the first letter. Of course, this is a follow-up. Remember, a last will and testament before Peter is executed. So again, it benefits the church to really pay close attention 
to what these final words are. But he says this, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. So Christ must be proclaimed, Christ must be believed. So received a faith of the same kind of ours as ours. So what does this mean and what lessons can we learn from it? So first of all, when it comes to believing in Christ and exercising faith in Him, we must first understand this as an act of His grace. What Peter says to those, to these saints, is that they have received a faith, right? Faith is not something that we simply conjure up. Faith isn't something that we simply will out of thin air. Faith is something that is received supernatural, supernaturally. Given to us after we are born again. That as we are made alive in Christ, we can't not believe. So even faith we recognize is something as a gift of God. He has granted us faith. He has granted us repentance. We believe because God has irresistibly called us in Christ to believe. But the reason that people believe is because Christ is proclaimed. You see how one falls on the other. Christ is believed where He is proclaimed. This expression here is an interesting one. The word in the New Testament refers to casting lots. Casting lots for something. We read about this in Acts 1.17 where the disciples, now absent one, cast lots to see who will fill in Judas' place. So they cast lots. And what does that mean? They leave that up to the will of God. That however the lot falls, that person is God's choice. And so that's how we understand this. That we receive a faith based on God's gracious choice toward of us. And He gives us that which is necessary to exercise faith. So this is not faith in terms of the faith, you know, the body of doctrine that we embrace. It refers to that supernatural gift of believing in Christ alone that is imparted by God's grace. Remember, it is by grace we are saved through faith, not of yourself. It is the gift of God. That salvation, Paul is saying, in its entirety is a gift of God. And that includes the faith to receive it. Listen to what Paul says to the Romans, chapter 12, verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Who are the each in view here? The each is each believer. He has granted us a measure of faith. And so you may, and I don't want you guys to be discouraged because some of you out there, you, you may have a faith that is not strong. You may have a faith that wavers. You may have a weak faith, right? You may have an immature faith. But one thing I like to encourage the saints with is this. Even though your faith is weak, take heart because your faith doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. So no matter how weak your faith may be, you have a Savior who is infinitely strong and able to save you to the uttermost, regardless of how weak your faith may be. Again, do not stay weak in faith. Grow in it. See your faith increase. Ask God to strengthen your faith. But if your faith is given to you from God, it is a faith that will remain. So don't be discouraged. Take heart that it is still from God and that your faith rests in a Savior who is more than able to come to your aid to deliver you from the hand of the enemy and to save you. See, this this faith that has been received is a precious faith. Note what Peter says. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. So the same kind here, this expression same kind, is better understood in terms of value instead of a similarity. We think, you know, we hear same faith. We think, oh, it's the same, the same kind of faith. No, this is, but this is, this is, this tells us that our faith is precious. See, this is the only place in the New Testament where this expression is used. And what Peter is saying is that their faith being received as a gift from God is equally as precious as the faith belonging to Peter. And when he says ours, we could, we could interpret that as meaning uh, the faith of the apostles, right? Some may say it means the, the faith of, of the Jews, those, who, those to whom the gospel went out initially. But whatever the case, we understand that God is now extending an invitation to 
to both Jew and Gentile to be part of His covenant community in Christ. And so what we understand here via the, this expression, the preciousness of faith, is that there is no second-class citizenship in the, king, in the kingdom of God. Right? This was very true when it came to the Old Covenant. Gentiles had second-class citizenship. But when we talk about faith in Christ, we understand that this faith is equally precious because it's all derived from the same source that is God Himself. And, the, and that results in the same standing, the same promises, the same privileges, the same covenant blessings, all have equal access to the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no court of the Gentiles, right? We are all now the community of the church being the most holy place. That is where, where God Himself dwells. So, you know, back in the Old Covenant provision, we... The, the, uh, the Holy of Holies was only accessible to one person. You could say two people, God and the High Priest. And now in the new, under the New Covenant, in Christ, with this precious faith, we can enter all of us boldly to the throne of grace. And as Christ's people, we are that most holy place because we are where the presence of God dwells. And if by faith we are able to be in the presence of God in such a powerful way, how precious then is that faith to us? Faith is precious. It is a, it is a treasure, a gift from God to us. We find this reality expressed in Romans 1.5. Paul says this, through whom, speaking of, speaking of Christ, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. So there's an example of the Gentiles, of the gospel going to the Gentiles. Look at how Paul describes this, these, these people. Among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. See, if you are God's people now, you are only God's people based on being called of Jesus Christ. See, it's now by faith. It's all by faith. I think John echoes the same thinking. See, there's this there's a sense in which the apostles are repeating that New Testament, that New Covenant revelation that in Christ, both Jew and Gentile are being drawn right from the four corners of the earth. The elect are being drawn and called out to join the ranks of the new humanity in Christ. We find this in 1 John chapter 1, 2-4. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be complete. So that is what we're doing. When we proclaim Christ, we are calling everyone, every tongue and tribe and nation, Behold Christ. Behold your King. Behold your Savior. Come and believe in Him. Believe in Him and be a part of His people. Come to the fellowship and enjoy life in Christ. We find this even expressed by Caiaphas in John chapter 11 when they were discussing how to execute Jesus. Remember, he says, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for, for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now he did not save us on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day, they planned together to kill him. To gather into one, right? The children of God who are scattered abroad. See, as we proclaim the Gospel, we are proclaiming a Savior who has laid His life down for His people. And within that, and on the basis of that very act, there is a provision of a real faith and trust in what Christ has done. A faith that is equally precious across the board. And so as verse 1 continues, we see how this is accomplished, right? This, they, everyone who, who believes in Christ 
has received a faith of the same kind, equally precious, right? And so we must treat it as such. But, but how does this come about? Peter, Peter believes it is necessary under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to announce how this very thing comes about. So he says this, that this faith that has been received, right, that is the same kind of ours, is by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's a lot, there's a lot packed in here. But that's how it's accomplished. By the righteousness of God, again, not by our own works, not by our own merits, or efforts, but by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there, there are a few ways of understanding this, and depending on what, what commenta- commentator or theologian you go to, there are a couple of, there are a couple of uh, uh, prevailing views of what Peter means here by the righteousness of God, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, so here's, here's the first thing. When we read this word righteousness, we understand that God is acting in accordance with what is good and right and true. So even if you look down in the passage, the various passages in 2 Peter, we will find righteousness expressed this way. So if you look down, just go, follow along with me, if you will. 2 Peter chapter 1, he talks about righteousness. He says, I consider it right, okay, morally right, morally good, that which is consistent with God's standard. That is how we are fundamentally able to understand what is, what is righteousness. Righteousness is an essential part of God's character, how He has revealed Himself, right? That God can and will only do that which is right, that which is consistent with His, with His own life, right? With His own standard. If you look in chapter 2, verse 5, look at this. Talking about God's judgment, but then he mentions Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. That which is good, that which is right, that which is true. That which is consistent with who God is. We read the same thing in verse 7, I believe. Righteous Lot, right? Light was a, Lot was a righteous man. We would think that the what Genesis says about him may lead us to another conclusion, but Peter here says that Lot was a, was a righteous man. We would say that, that Lot, not just righteous in the sense that he did what was right, but he was righteous by faith. Verse 8 calls him again a righteous man. Peter seems to, oddly enough, emphasize this, that, that Lot stood apart, was distinct from those with whom he lived, he was a righteous man, not unrighteous. In verse 21 of chapter 2, for it would be better, for it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them, right? Known the way of righteousness. What is the way of righteousness, right? Well, it's the way that is consistent with God's righteous standard. So, one primary way of understanding how it's used by Peter here is, first of all, is God's saving righteousness. right? God's righteous act of salvation. And if you look at the Scriptures, you find a multitude of, of passages that allude to this. That God's showing up in salvation seems to run parallel with some kind of revelation of His righteousness. In Psalm twenty-two thirty-one, we read this: "They will come and will declare His righteousness to a people who will be born that He has performed it." Listen to Psalm thirty-three, one: "In You, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In Your righteousness, deliver me." So there, so there is this this act of God in which His righteousness is revealed in His deliverance of the psalmist. We see this repeated in Psalm thirty-five. Judge me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness, and do not let them rejoice over me. And my tongue shall declare your righteousness and your praise all day long. See, the psalmist asking God again for deliverance. Here's another one. Psalm 40, verse 10. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. But listen to this. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. So he is demonstrating in parallel fashion the relationship between God's salvation and His righteousness. Isaiah 42.6 says this, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant 
to the people as a light to the nations. Isaiah 45.8, And let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit. And righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Righteousness, salvation, walking hand in hand. Here's another way of viewing it. That in understanding God's righteousness, we see that God is granting this faith in a righteous manner. Meaning that when God saves or grants faith, it is a righteous act in the sense that it is done without respect to persons, right? God does not favor us because of, of who we are, right? He's, he, doesn't, he doesn't save us because there's something oh so extra special about us that, that God couldn't imagine heaven without us, so He saved us. There's nothing to distinguish us. Apart from grace, we remain wretched and blind and dead rebels. So that is to say that when God saves in righteousness or gives or grants faith in righteousness, He does so impartially. That it is an impartial justice that is rendered. So here's what I think it means. I think going back to our initial understanding of righteousness as being an essential part of how we understand who God is and His character, I think it's, it, it's that kind of righteousness. Because the righteousness of God reveals all those things, right? God's righteousness is revealed in His act of salvation. God's righteousness is revealed because He does save without partiality. So I think we can understand this in, in its fullness. That when God grants faith, His righteousness is revealed. That this precious faith that is granted to us is sourced in God's righteous character. Think about this. Think about the righteousness of God's decree, right? The fact that God declares Himself a saving God is in itself a righteous decree. Why? Because God is righteous. So if God desires to save people and and decrees that to be part of His plan, we we should automatically conclude that is a righteous thing that the Lord is doing and is worthy of our attention. It is worthy of of our response to say that because God is Savior, this is good and right because it reveals who God is in His righteous character. God reveals Himself to us. We know this by the very fact of the Gospel. In Romans 1.16, we read this from Paul, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now listen to this, verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So we see see this combination of these three concepts. Salvation, righteousness, and faith. That is, as whether whether you take faith to mean the faith of each individual, or faith to faith, meaning the deepening of a believer's faith as, as life goes on, we find that in the, ex, in the exercise of that faith, God's righteousness, that which comports with His righteous character, everything that is good and right and true, that is revealed. So we have this distinct privilege, going back to our calling, right? Our calling in Christ to reveal the righteousness of God. That is why it's so key for the Christian to live a righteous life. We're not just called to be saved, right? To be delivered from sin. But as we walk with God, we are called to be those who reveal, based on the way we live, by faith, to reveal God's righteousness. To put His righteous character and glory on display. Remember, in all things, we point to Him. That's why we return to the main theme of this passage. Of Jesus Christ. Of Jesus Christ. Of Jesus Christ. It's about Him. It's about revealing Him. It's about putting Him on display. Right? So in this very act of salvation, God's righteousness is revealed. We even see this righteousness put on display in God's promises. Because God has promised to save. All throughout Scripture, God has revealed to us His grand design of saving men of calling to, to Himself a people. Again, fully realized in Christ. Fully realized in the New Covenant, right? Consider Jeremiah 31, 33-34. 
But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. This is talking about the new covenant. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Right? They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember, I will remember no more. Think of how many promises are just in those two verses. Right? There's so, there's so much here that has been fulfilled in Christ. Has God put His law within us? Has He written His law on our hearts? He has. Is He our God? He is. Are we His people? We are. Do we know the Lord? We do. We all know Him from the least to the greatest. Has God forgiven our iniquity? He has. Has He remembered our sin? No, does He remember our sin no more? Absolutely. He will never call to mind our sin. See, all of these things point to God being righteous because He has lived up to these promises and has fulfilled them in Jesus Christ. So in that sense, receiving, us receiving a faith by righteousness is God's righteousness put on display in total. something that we should consider that is the presence of righteousness in the life in the life of the church right? that God's very saving act is a righteous act reveals his righteousness in many different fashions right see this promise as well in Hebrews chapter 8 before quoting Jeremiah 31 he says this in verse 6 but now he, that is Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. So what he, the writer to Hebrews is confirming here is that the promise of God has been fulfilled in his ratifying in Christ's blood, the new covenant. The promise is here and it has been given to those who embrace Christ by faith. Everyone who God calls to himself. So in all those things, God is revealing His righteousness. And we also have to say in salvation, He is upholding His righteousness in the sense that He is upholding His justice. Remember, God cannot grant salvation to His people without judging our sin. But that problem is resolved. In Romans 3.21-26 we read this, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, so there's the sin problem, right? We all fall short of the glory of God. Now, how does the gospel remedy this? Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God, listen to this, here's our answer, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He could be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God's righteous character, His righteous standard, is not violated. Because sin has been punished in the person of Christ. So that He would be just, that is, He would be righteous, and the justifier, that is, the one who declares men to be righteous. But He only, he only justifies those who have faith in Christ. So God's righteousness is displayed in many fashions as regards to His salvation. We just, see, this keeps us from thinking of salvation in one-dimensional fashion. Salvation is a, is a word that encompasses so much precious truth to the Christian, that encompasses so much to encourage us to endure and to persevere and to stand up against unrighteousness. This is so profound. I mean, you think about too, God is righteous in the very act of His people. On one hand, through faith in Jesus Christ upon hearing the gospel, right? There is a transformation that takes place. 
we become a righteous new creation, but also the very righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. We are clothed in it. According to Romans 4 or 5, Paul says this, for the one who does not work, right? For the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies, that is, declares righteous, the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So, of course, this is not a righteousness of our own. This is a righteousness that has been reckoned or has been credited to our account. The very righteousness of Christ that we receive through faith by grace. We read further down in Romans 10, verse 10, for with the heart a person believes, and what's the result? Righteousness. Again, not a righteousness in and of ourselves, but a righteousness that has been given to us. So God can look upon us and see the very righteousness of His Son. And go back to a point I've made already. That's why, friends, it is so key to live righteously. We don't want to live in contradictory fashion. We don't want to, by our very lives, deny the righteous work that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. That is a contradiction. It is inconsistent with who we are called and who we are made to be by God's grace. So there is, so again, there is a, there is a very moral, ethical dimension to this. One last passage, 1 John 3, 7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. So this, so we find that having received a faith by a righteous act of God, a totally just act consistent with his character, there is an outflowing of that in which we, as a, as a matter of life, as a way of life, do what is righteous, that which comports with God's righteous character. We're, again, we're just being what we are. We're just being who we are in Christ. But that explains why faith is so precious. Faith is precious because it puts on display the righteous salvation of God. I mean, that's enough for us, right? See, God must be proclaimed, but He must be believed. And when He is believed, we reflect His righteousness. See, this is how Christ is revealed in that salvation, how His righteousness is made clear. And note this, something very clear here we don't want to miss. Peter refers to Jesus Christ, based on the grammar here, as God and Savior. So again, affirming the deity of Jesus Christ and the fact that He is Savior. You go down to verse 3, you also, or verse, the end of verse 2, you see Him called Jesus Lord. So He is God, He is Savior, and He is Lord. And I think this, this is significant considering what is going on in Peter's time, and perhaps it clues us in as to what the accusation is against him as well as other Christians who are being persecuted and as time goes on will also be put to death. See, remember, to believe in Jesus Christ was to declare him to be God, to be Savior, and to be Lord. See, this was an offense to Roman culture. In this time in which Peter's writing, and we see it, we see it grow as the decades pass, is that there is a growing imperial, imperial cult where Caesar receives the same honors as deity. Now, it, it's hard to find an example where, where Caesar is actually proclaimed as the one true God. It's more, more, more or less, he's proclaimed as a, as a demigod. He is divine. Caesar is seen as divine. He is also seen as Savior. Right? That, C, that Caesar was presented as as a man who would, who would save the Roman populace, right? Who would be a, a hero to his people. Who would, in a sense, build a kingdom where life was as it should be. We would call that today a counterfeit shalom. We also see that Caesar was proclaimed as Lord, as sovereign, as master. And yet, in the face of that, Jesus Christ was being proclaimed as the same thing. But here's the, here's the thing, though. Jesus Christ was not being proclaimed as some mere option, right? That he was one of many gods. He was not competing, as it were, with Caesar, right? We do not see the Lord Jesus Christ as someone 
to be competed with, right? When He is declared as God, He is declared as the only true and living God. The Creator God. The One who sustains all of creation. Worthy of worship. He is not simply a demigod. He is God, a very God. God Himself in the flesh, exalted far above any power, earthly or heavenly, to whom all things must be subjected, including Caesar. See, one of the reasons we bring this up more and more today is because of this increasing teaching in our own culture that says the state is God, right? So the state doesn't want any competitors. And so what we're saying is, look, you can't even compete with the Lord Jesus. He is God and you owe your obedience and love and trust to Him. And that is an offense. Because we are saying that not only is Jesus God, but He is going to subdue every other power and authority on, on heaven and on earth. That is an offensive proclamation to those who do not know and love God. So in, in first, and so in, in the mind of Peter, even Caesar owed his love, faith, and allegiance to Christ. He couldn't even compete. Right? There's no one beside Christ and there's no one above Him. Even Caesar had to bow down to Him. Even Caesar was called to believe. And so in Peter's last will and testament, he can make that clear. There is one God and it's Jesus. There is one Savior, it's Jesus. There is one Lord and it's Jesus. No one above Him, no one beside Him. There is no other dangerous time to be teaching that and maybe one day as we're faithful it'll be dangerous to teach that in our society as well here's the third thing so christ must be proclaimed christ must be believed and finally christ must be known look at verse 2 grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of god and our savior jesus christ so here it is grace and peace a typical of an apostolic greeting that is to say Grace is mentioned first, totally appropriate, because we do not know peace unless grace comes first. Even peace, shalom, life as it ought to be, where there is, where there is order, right? Where there is life consistent with who God is, right? A life that God has set in order. Even that is a gift of His grace. There is no peace without grace. And many will say, many in that time will say, peace, peace, right? But there is no peace. There is no peace apart from God's gracious provision to us. His gracious provision in Christ. And so it is Peter's desire for for his audience that not only grace and peace be present, but grace and peace be multiplied. See, God uses the same word speaking to Abraham. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. We want to see grace and peace exponentially present and growing in the midst of the church. Not compartmentalized, but to color and pervade every area of life. Right? We desire that. But how does it grow? How does it multiply? What is the seedbed of that? Look, look, at the, look at the text. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge. This is where it happens, friends. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So the, the challenge here to the church is clear. The question must be asked, are you pursuing a deeper knowledge of God and Christ? Are you delighting in God? Are you deepening your knowledge of Him as a loving Father, as your Creator and Giver of every good thing? Are you pursuing a deeper knowledge of Christ as your Shepherd, as your Savior and King, as one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? These are real questions. Here's another one. Are you consistently prevailing upon all heavenly graces and mercies that He gives us? Do you think, I mean, are you asking the question, why do I have so little peace? Right? Why does the grace of God seem so inactive in my life? My question for you would be, are you pursuing the knowledge of God? Are you seeking to know God more. Again, not just isolated facts about Him, but knowing Him intimately, knowing Him personally, delighting in His presence, delighting in His involvement and, and Lordship over your life. These are questions 
we, we have to ask, and I think for so many of us, we don't see a deepening of knowledge because we're not pursuing knowledge. In fact, sometimes we write off knowledge as something for the scholars, right? Something for an upper class of saints, right? Something for pastors. Something for an elite. No, we are all called to deepen our knowledge of Christ. I mean, think about you know, the marriage illustration. Can you say that you love your wife if you really haven't spent any time getting to know her? Love is tied to knowledge, right? So again, it's, it's, it's an intimate knowledge, not just knowing things about them, but knowing them personally by spending time with them. So in order for the church to really endure, especially times like we're going through now, we must know our God. We must know our Savior. Is your life lacking in grace and peace? See again, where there is self-righteousness and striving in the flesh, where your life is as a wave tossed about by wind and chaos abounds, is a life where the knowledge of God is not increasing. Here's the thing. Knowledge is the very food for grace and peace. If your grace and peace are stagnant, right? If you do, if you, if your life is chaotic, if you do not see the peace of God abound and the grace of God abound, the very next question should be, am I pursuing a true and living knowledge of my Savior? That's the question. And I think you will find that perhaps the answer will be no. So, this grace and peace, we grow in the knowledge of Christ exclusively, right? We don't look to any other, any other instrument, any other way in which we grow, but in, but that we grow in grace and peace, but in knowledge, right? Life transforming revelation. Listen to what Jesus says in John 17, 3. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, right? So we, this grace and peace grow in the knowledge of Christ exclusively. Secondly, I think you will find that grace and peace grow in the knowledge of Christ abundantly, right? God has not left His people scraps, right? He has given us the very gift of Himself, right? Exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask for or think. Again, grow in the knowledge of God. There will be more truth, more life-giving truth than you can even take in, right? We can know God abundantly even though we can't know Him exhaustively. But He gives us of Himself in such a clear and abundant way. Do not deprive yourself of the worth of Christ in your life. Thirdly, grace and peace are grown in the knowledge of Christ decisively. That I am called, that is to call you, friends, to conviction, right? That you would have it no other way. That you would not be double-minded regarding these things. That you would see growth in grace and peace in the knowledge of Christ as something worth the expense of other things, right? That other things may be put aside so that you may pursue Christ and know Him. Think of what Paul says in Philippians 3, 7-8. through But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ, more than that I count all things to be lost in view of surpassing the surpassing value of knowing Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Time to make a rubbish list, right? <laughs> what are those things that are preventing you from knowing Christ more? From growing in grace and peace? They are trash. Regard them as trash so that you may gain Christ. So in review, in closing instructions, we are to proclaim Him. We are to believe in Him and we are to know Him. So proclaim Christ and be glad. Believe in Christ and be saved. Know Christ and be satisfied. These things He gives us out of His abundant grace. And I tell you, when we set our minds to, to be nourished on these things, when, our minds, when this mindset is firmly in place, how then can anything upset our confidence in God's ability to in due time reconcile all things to Himself. There is nothing that will stop it. So proclaim Him, believe Him, know Him. And may God be glorified in that. Let's pray. Father, thank You again uh, for Your Word. Lord, these are things that must be so. 
They must be so in, in the life of your church. Christ must be proclaimed. He must be believed and He must be known. Oh Lord, we are empty. We are empty without that. And I pray that this would be our mindset, Lord, as we seek to be wise into how to endure in times like these. We know there's so many challenges externally, internally. And sometimes, Father, we, we know that we confess that we often feel overwhelmed by them. But You have not left us hanging. You have not left us as orphans. You have called us to Yourself. You have given us instructions. You have granted us a precious faith. You have revealed to us what must be so, what must be true in Your church. And I pray that these things would be true in us. That we'd be faithful, full of conviction to proclaim Christ, to believe in Christ, and to know Christ, Lord. That that is our top priority. And that so much blessing is bound up in that. So help us, Lord, to be true to You, to be faithful, and to embrace these promises. Christ has given us everything, and we are rich in Him. And we, uh, again, rejoice in the righteousness that has been revealed in the Gospel and in His saving work. May we be good stewards of it. May we be found faithful. And may we be joyful in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.